everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. My name is Caroline Roberts, producer of Radio Free Acton, and we've got a full show for you today. First, Trey Dimsdale, director of program outreach, will speak with Jennifer Roback Morse, founder of the Ruth Institute, about her upcoming Acton lecture series event, at which she will speak on family breakdown and economics. Then on our upstream segment, Bruce Edward Walker will be speaking with Patrick Edding, Director of Alumni Relations, about the new film, The Darkest Hour. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is Trey Dimsdale from the uh, Acton Building in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on uh, our podcast today with Dr. Jennifer Moore. Uh, This is in preparation of uh, your visit to the Acton Institute coming up for an Acton Lecture Series luncheon. Can you tell us a little bit about the the topic that you're going to be addressing when you're here with us? Well, I gave it a title of Why the Acton Institute Needs the Ruth Institute, and I'll tell you the story that inspired me to give this title to this talk uh, at Acton, I recently relocated to Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is a city in southwest Louisiana of about 100,000 people, and it has a very strong economy and very, very um, culturally conservative kind of a place. But the thing I have heard as long as I've been here is how hard it is for people to get and keep good employees, particularly in the trades and in the blue-collar jobs. There are a lot of good blue-collar jobs here. And they can't get people to come and stay and show up when they're supposed to show up, be sober every day, and just basically do what they're supposed to do. And I look at this situation and I think, what what the heck is going on here, you know? And then I realize that uh, my son is involved in a recovery group. And when I talk to him about the other fellas that live with him and that are in recovery from addiction, what I hear again and again from my son is that these guys, they have no one, Trey. They have no one. These guys would be so good at some of these jobs. Some of these guys have lost really good jobs because they can't keep themselves together. But when you listen to them, you realize their parents are of no use to them at all. Their parents are on drugs or just somehow a mess and not really available. If they're, if they're adults, they should be married. They could be married. But they're not. Their love lives are a complete mess. They may have kids with different people, and there's continual churning and drama in their relationships. And so here's your workforce that that should be doing very well in a very good blue-collar town, and and they they can't get it together. So the, the, the problem of the family and the breakdown of the family is affecting the economy whether people realize it or not. And this is part of what I want to try to make clear to people is that the health of the family affects everything that everybody cares about, especially the people at the Acton Institute and and followers of the Acton Institute who care about economic liberty and a free and virtuous society. The family is crucial to the mission of the Acton Institute. That's what I want to talk about when I get there next week. So I'm assuming that these individuals that you're talking about that have lost these jobs that that are that are kind of living in chaotic circumstances, how exactly do they support themselves? Well, you know, they're they're a paycheck from poverty. I mean, these are guys who are really 
on the edge and something will happen and I'll go pick my son up and take him someplace or get him to the doctor or, you know, give him advice about something. And he'll say, he'll turn to me and he'll say, mom, thank you so much for helping me. My roommate would have nobody to do this for him. If this, if this happened to him, you know, and he, and he's seen guys go down like that. So no, they're, you know, in, in some cases they're, they're not on any type of disability or welfare or anything like that. They don't qualify for those kind of programs. Um, and, and they are able-bodied, but they're just, they just don't have it together. You know, uh, every little thing that for you or me would be a little bump on the road, turns out to throw them into a tailspin. You know, they got nobody to pick them up and give them a ride when their car breaks down, you know, <laughs> just something as simple as that. Um, so th- th- I, I just, I just think people in the managerial classes don't realize how much our families do for us and how much family members just routinely do for each other. And the people who are living closer to the edge economically, um, the loss of their families is catastrophic. It's way more than inconvenient. You know, it's catastrophic for a lot of those people. And that's what I want to try to call the people's attention. Right. So this generation you're talking, you're pointing to your son's generation is the generation of children that were born from the sexual revolution. Am I right? That's right. That's exactly right. And so we're starting to see the uh, the we're we're starting to see fruit being born of uh, of the of the ideas that were there. So maybe walk us back a bit to what is it exactly that that we can trace some of these problems to? What's what are the ideas that are actually causing the breakdown of the family that uh, that we need to be aware of and and mindful of to try to combat? Well, that's a great question, Trey. And I I have thought a lot about the sexual revolution and um, talk about some of these topics in my talks at Acton University, which, by the way, I must say, I'm very grateful to you and the education staff there at Acton for giving me the chance to try out this material in front of live audiences, you know. Um, But uh, but in any case, the, the three big ideas of the sexual revolution, uh, one is the divorce ideology. The divorce ideology basically says that kids are resilient and they're so resilient that parents and adults can break up their relationships and substitute in new parents and new sex partners and everything will be okay. The kids will be fine, you know, no matter how many times you divorce and remarry or or never get married in the first place and repartner and so on. Kids will be fine. They're, you know, it's all good. The kids are resilient. Um, That's completely untrue. It's completely untrue, which, you know, a moment's thought should have told us that it would be untrue. Uh, But we now have a lot of data that shows it's untrue. And when you actually talk to people and and you really, really start paying attention, you can see that the experience of people from broken families and divorced families and all these kind of um, alternative family forms, as we euphemistically call them, People are really suffering a lot from all of that. So that's one idea is the the divorce ideology. Second uh, ideology, I I call the contraceptive ideology. Um, It's the idea that uh, a good and decent society should do everything possible to separate sex from babies. And, you know, when you think about that, well, in the 60s, it sounded like it was going to be a lot of fun. You know, OK, well, we can have sex without having babies. Wow, that's 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 cool, man. Groovy, you know, the whole thing. But but now we're to the point where we're having babies without having sex. 
because we think that the baby is kind of um, our entitlement. If we we're entitled to buy one if we want one, and we're entitled to get rid of it if we don't want one. You know, that's that's become our attitude towards towards children and the connection between sex and babies. Um, to put it a different way, well, look at one time I one time I was given a talk at a doing a debate at a law school, and I made the statement. I said, "Sex makes babies," and my opponent said, "No, it doesn't." Yeah, she did. She said, no, it doesn't. I said, what do you mean? (laughs) And she said, unprotected sex makes babies. See, so that's the way their, their, their mind works. That's the way the ideology works is that, is that children are the result of contraceptive failures. They're not the result of the sexual act, you know, so that, that, that's created tremendous uh, distortions in our thought process about, um, the relation between sex and babies and our behavior, you know. Um, and, and then the final ideology uh, that's part of the sexual revolution is what I call the gender ideology, uh, which says that the differences between men and women are, are all socially constructed and therefore can be reconstructed. And now we're to the point where we're saying, well, that, that was the early version. You know, I used to be able to say um, men and women are identical, except women are better. That was the early feminist view of the gender ideology. But, but now it's more to the point where um, the body is so unimportant. You know, the, 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 the gender of the body, the sex of the body is so unimportant that you can reconstruct it yourself if you don't like the one you have. You know, um, we use enough physical technology, medical technology, and then enough social, cultural software wrapped around it uh, to support you in whatever your choice is, we do enough of that. By golly, you can be a man even if you have XX chromosomes, you know. Um, and and that's what we're trying to build society around. And so those those three ideas—the gender ideology, the contraceptive ideology, the divorce ideology—those are the things that are creating enormous confusion and enormous chaos and pain in the lives of families. And that's what I'm going to be talking about and trying to explain to acting people who care so much about freedom and the economy uh, to see how all of that affects the economy. So obviously we can see that there are engines of moral formation out there, the church, uh, schools, families themselves. And those are places where we need to get this message to so that we can hopefully head off another generation of people that are impacted by these ideas. But what do we do with the fact, the, the present reality that we do have a generation of people who have been impacted by these three ideologies that, as you pointed out, are so damaging to all corners of society? Well, the, I think one of the first things we need to do is to acknowledge that there's a problem and be open to hearing what people have to say about the fact that there's a problem. Um, so just to give one very concrete example that probably a lot of people could implement right now, you know, um, is that in families where there has been divorce or separation or some kind of um, shuffling of the parents, it's not unusual for everybody to say, oh, the kids will be fine. Um, and if the kids aren't fine, it's the kids problem, <laughs> you know. Not that not there's there's nothing wrong with the underlying structure of the family. It's you. You're too sensitive, um, and and so what happens to that child as they grow up 
is that they're they're asked to kind of redefine reality. And even as adults, it can be that there's no space in the family system for them to say, you know, this was awful for me, <laughs> you know. And and so I, I think something a lot of people would, would be able to do would just be able to, would be to say to somebody in the situation, you know, look, I, I didn't realize when we did this, when your dad and I did this, when I did that, um, I, I didn't realize what this might be like for you. So, you know, what was it like for you? And and then be quiet and listen to what they have to say and don't try to talk them out of it. To really listen to the experience of people who've been harmed. And not only does it have this, you know, kind of social effect of getting us out of our, our craziness, but it's it's only fair to those people themselves who who've already been harmed by their parents' divorce, for example, and then and then for nobody to ever listen to them for the rest of their lives, you know that 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 that's a double a double injustice to them. So so that's something that that anybody could start implementing right now. Right, we live in a we we live in a cultural moment right now where voice has been given to victims of of many different types of injustices and in uh, deservedly so I should say, but this is a this is a um, a group of victims that has by and large been been ignored, I guess. Yeah, well, not more than ignored, Trey. They've been actively suppressed. You know, so so we've actually started calling our followers family justice warriors. Oh, <laughs> saying instead of social justice warriors, let's talk about family justice warriors. You know, it's it's unjust to a child to break up their home for no reason. You know, that's unjust. <laughs> what are we doing here? You know, um, and for the whole society to rally around the adults and leave the kids there sucking their thumbs trying to figure out what just happened. You know, that's unjust. So we refer to we refer to ourselves now as family justice warriors. Well, here at the Acton Institute, the Ruth Institute, we have lunch lectures where we have people like you to come in and speak. We, we host conferences, you host events, you publish books. The person who's listening today that doesn't have at their their disposal the resources of, of an institute and a platform that something like this um, provides, what do they do with this information? Where do they what do they where do they go? What do they say in their parishes or their local churches or their schools? What's the what's the advice that you give to that person? Wow, that's a great question, Trey. You know what? We try to make our resources available to those people, right? Um, so we have a place on our website where people can tell their stories, for example, anonymously. Uh, we have something called uh, Ruth Institute Book Clubs, which are the opportunity to create a small group comparable to a Bible study or a women's group or something like that. Uh, but we prepare four weeks worth of curriculum for you to read on a particular topic uh, and discuss. And we create the discussion questions and we have training for people and to be book club leaders and the, and the, and the whole thing. So that would be a very suitable thing that anybody listening to this could do. You know, if you're interested in what is divorce done to America, um, if you're interested in tips for a happier marriage, we have curricula around those topics that people could then use as uh, the basis for a small group study group. And that'd be a great thing to take to your church. Right, right. Well, Dr. Morse, we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thanks again, too, for uh, 
taking your time to come up to Grand Rapids here in a couple of weeks. There's going to be more information that listeners to our podcast can find out about uh, how to either watch the live stream or be here with us in Grand Rapids when you're here. Um, thanks again for your time. Thanks again for your work and for your friendship uh, to the Institute. Well, thank you so much, Trey. I'm really looking forward to, to uh, coming up to Grand Rapids in a couple of weeks. Me too. Me too. Thanks a lot. Family breakdown is expensive. Taxpayers provide programs to step in when the family fails. Businesses have trouble finding workers they need with even basic skills. Individuals and families struggle to make ends meet when families don't work together. What exactly are we going to do about all this? Join us on January 25th at the Acton Institute to hear Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morse, longtime research associate at the Acton Institute and founder and president of the Ruth Institute on family breakdown and the economy. You can register for this event at acton.org. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing ground. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today we'll be talking about one of the individuals of the most stature of the 20th century, and that would be Winston Churchill, who is the subject of the new movie Darkest Hour, as well as uh, several other depictions recently. And as long as we're going to talk about someone of such high stature, we're going to talk to an individual of significantly high stature, and that is Patrick Edding, who is about uh, 7 foot 12, I think, uh, according to the last measurements. This guy's tall. I'd ask him to sit down, but he already is. Patrick is the alumni relations director here at Acton. And uh, you saw Darkest Hour over the weekend, Patrick? I did see the Darkest Hour over the weekend. This is a movie that was directed by Joe Wright and stars Gary Oldman, who just won a Golden Globe for Best Actor for his portrayal of Winston Churchill. Gary Oldman, uh, you may remember, uh, played Beethoven in Immortal Beloved. Uh, He played George Smiley. He played uh, Dylan Thomas. He was in the uh, in some of the Harry Potter movies as Sirius Sirius Black, and he's played the the playwright Joe Orton. He's played the punk bass player Sid Vicious, and uh, the movie also stars Ben Mendelsohn as King George the Sixth and Kristen Scott Thomas as Clementine, and Joe Wright, the director, basically cut his chops on Pride and Prejudice in uh, 2005, I believe. Uh, he did uh, Ian McEwan's adaptation Atonement and Anna Karenina. So uh, we're, we're talking about uh, you're bringing a lot of firepower to this movie. And uh, in a lot of ways, I think it pays off. In a couple of ways, it doesn't. So I'll, I'll let you take the floor. Well, he's definitely an eclectic person that has an eclectic background, uh, and a diverse background, to say the least. And I think that comes out in his portrayal of Winston Churchill, who was an eclectic character himself, um, and a man of many talents. So I think he does a fantastic job. I personally thought he did a fantastic job of portraying Winston Churchill um, throughout the film. I, I love the performance. I, I'm not familiar with a ton of those mo- in the other movies that he's been in, um, but I really enjoyed his portrayal of Winston Churchill. Right. Well, uh, one, of, one of my favorite portrayals is in a kind of a Chopsaki movie that he did, uh, written by Quentin Tarantino and directed by Tony Scott called True Romance, where Gary Oldman plays a, uh, a white individual in a heavily African-American element in Detroit, where he is a, a drug dealer, a very violent individual. But uh, he, he is a very 
wide ranging actors. So he he can play anything from the character in True Romance to Beethoven to Sid Vicious, the punk rocker, heroin addict, and uh, to George Smiley. And he's fifty nine years old and is. Really, he does a remarkable, remarkable job. Let's talk a little bit about um, the, the the character of Winston Churchill and how it's portrayed. I mean, there there, there are many things that are historically accurate, but then there are also uh, places where they they kind of uh, finesse it a little bit uh, to add a little bit of drama and a little bit of flavor. Well, so in the opening scene, we uh, come to Winston Churchill. He's in his bed and uh, the new secretary is showing up. They're advising her on how um, kind of abrasive and um, he mumbles and they, all these things. And then she goes up to the room and sees him. He's laying in his bed, not dressed yet. Um, the maids have made his breakfast. He appears kind of aloof, maybe in disarray, a bit absent-minded maybe even. He's mumbling, um, seems to stutter over his words. And he's drinking whiskey for breakfast and, yes. and a bottle of champagne for lunch lunch. And so they kind of, you kind of get this negative image of Winston Churchill is almost that he wasn't fit for the position um, or something. It was just by happenstance that he, he fell into this, um, into the prime minister role, but um, it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. And I was reading a review from Jim Talent at National Review and he said, you know, they kind of miss Churchill's uh, was energetic and decisive and in, uh, he had a high level of intellect and the commanding presence and all these things that I think in the first scene are kind of troubling. And then the other, the other thing that it wasn't so historical was the um when he decides to hop out of his limo in the right. rain okay okay We're, i'm gonna bookmark that and we'll okay. get we'll get back yeah. to that patrick yeah. because um i i, I want to go back to what you were saying about the the national review essay on this because uh there was another essay written for national review by victor davis hansen but uh, I, I do want to talk about that in just a little bit but let's let's establish where where the movie begins and what time period it covers because um it, it's very telling i mean this was a very bleak era I remember, uh, I'm not that old, but um, I do recall in, in middle school getting a box set of Edward R. Murrow, you know, you are there type of recordings that were uh, re-recordings of some of Edward R. Murrow's talking about the Blitz on, on London. What England was going through at that given point in time, you've seen Dunkirk. I, I have not seen Dunkirk. You have, you have not seen Dunkirk. Yes. Holy Toledo. <laughs> wow. Um, demerits for you, young yeah. man. But th- this whole movie starts with Churchill becoming prime minister. No one else wants the job, essentially. And as, as soon as he is uh, named prime minister, Germany invades all these countries. They have pushed the Allied army to the sea in Dunkirk. And it's a do or die situation. I mean, to call it the darkest hour is basically calling Armageddon a trip to the sandbox. 300,000 troops were left stranded uh, at Calais and Dunkirk. It was uh, up in the air as to how this was actually going to play out. This could have ended the war. Well, well, and it, and it could have taken two routes, and the movie displays this pretty well, right? The one Halifax, Lord Halifax, wants to make a peace treaty with the with Hitler um, through Mussolini and the Italians as a mediator. And Churchill, um, I, we were talking about this earlier, but one of my favorite quotes in the movie, Churchill says, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. That, that kind of portrays his attitude throughout the movie is that he, he hates communism. He hates fascism. He's going to fight till the end. And he says multiple times at all costs um, to make sure that it does not take over, that the Germans are not 
taking over not just France and Dunkirk or uh, or Britain, but the world um, at that point. Right. Because uh, it recalled that at the time, this was before the United States was involved. There's a, a very telling scene where Churchill calls Franklin Roosevelt and said, hey, you know, how about, uh, you know, shipping us the planes that we borrowed money from you so that we could purchase? And Roosevelt, and Roosevelt says, if you can bring some, we'll get it one mile from the border of Canada. And if you bring some horses, they can drag it over. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. By that point in time, Great Britain was in between a rock and a hard place. And uh, it was beginning to look like it might be the end. It would have been an alternate history. Yeah. This would have been the, the man in the high tower scenario. It, uh, yeah. I, who, could, who could have even imagined what would have happened if Britain was not able to outlast the German forces for those for that one year um, before before the United States. Before the United States. And, right. Yeah. Okay. So the, the historical depiction, and this is where we get back to where I, I bookmarked, the historical depiction is remarkably accurate. I think they, they showed the resilience of, of Churchill and how he was able to roust the country, to get the country behind him, to do what needed to be done. This is very, very wonderful. But this is where... I hit the wall on the movie, and all of a sudden, he is racked with doubt. And we're referring to the train, the scene where he's, he jumps out of the car, and he's, well, he's, he's given permission now to Lord Halifax to go discuss with me, uh, the mediators and Mussolini and Italians about a potential peace treaty, and he's begun to think that, well, in his head, you can kind of see this interplay in his head, well, maybe maybe peace is the best option. Maybe this is what we need to do. We need to negotiate with the, with the Nazis, right? And then as he's riding in his car to parliament. Um, he's giving a speech that afternoon in parliament. As he's riding uh, in his limo, he decides to hop out and go down into the subway station uh, and take the subway to Westminster. This is where I, I just sort of checked out. I mean, this is when Gary Oldman stopped being Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill stopped being Winston Churchill, yep. and all of a sudden you got uh, Tom Hanks yep. or Jimmy Stewart uh, saying, well, I'm just going to get on the subway and listen to what the people say, and we're going to overturn, it's not Hitler, we're against it's Mr. Potter. Yeah, so, so, so there's this, yeah, this fantasy situation where Winston Winston Churchill gets on gets on the subway among this very diverse and eclectic audience of subway riders to take the train and he, he begins to ask them what do you guys want what do the people want um, I'm here and he asks all their names um, and apparently writes them all down at some point so that he can remember to specifically address them when they when he uh, gives us talk in front of part uh, in front of the ministers and so as he's writing uh, he's asking them what do you guys think and they the people the people want to go to battle and they they want to fight at all costs for their for the current lives that they have, and it's this kind of utopian dream of what what Winston of any prime minister riding on the subway asking the people what they want, and then going to the parliament and saying, "This is what the people want." I talked to Mister, and he listed their names and tells right, them all. Right, um, they want to fight till the last till the end. Right, it, it was all you know too much Frank Capra for my taste, and and I don't think it's spoiling the movie because we uh, we sort of kind of know what happens when he goes to parliament and Oldman delivers the we will fight on the beaches speech that is absolutely magnificent. And if the hair on your arm doesn't stand on end while he's reciting that, then uh, you do not have red blood flowing through your veins. It is a fantastic speech. I think it's it's portrayed well. You're, you're just waiting for that speech, really. You're like, okay, come on, let's get past this this filler time and just get to the, get to the speech. But yeah, it was, it was absolutely, it was wonderful. Yeah, I think everybody in the audit, everybody in the theater had hair standing up or was on the edge of their seat while he was giving it. Oh yeah, and uh, I, I saw some tissues come out at the same time too, which was, you know, good good for uh, U.S. audiences for for still being able to get the visceral impact of the most wonderful speech that 
was given in the, in the 20th century because it, it really is. And uh, to prepare, seeing this with my wife, what uh, I did prior to driving to the theater to see it was we sat and we watched Dunkirk okay. and she had, she had not seen it before. The, the films really worked together to show what really was at stake that, that there were more than 300,000 people on the beach who were within hours, if not minutes, of being annihilated. And here, here's Churchill saying, okay, this is my plan. This is what we're going to do. And we're never going to surrender. Patrick, uh, any last thoughts? I think it was very well done. Um, I, I enjoyed my time. It was worth the hefty price of $9 to see it, <laughs> definitely. But I would also encourage, as I didn't do my due diligence, watching Dunkirk in advance um, and also doing some reading on Churchill before you go. Uh, so you can kind of point out these historical maybe inaccuracies or embellishments uh, that exist throughout the film. All right. Well, thank you so much, Patrick Edding, who is the Alumni Relations Director here at the Akin Institute for Upstream. I'm Bruce Edward Walker. I'll talk to you next week. And that brings us to the close of another episode. A big thanks to all our listeners out there. Make sure you check out the official Acton site, spelled A-C-T-O-N dot org, to stay up to date on upcoming events or just check out some of the interesting content we produce daily. Finally, if you would like to contact our podcast team, you can email us at rfa at acton.org. Or if you have questions for the Radio Free Acton team that you would like answered in future podcast segments, you can leave a message at 888 705 4180. This episode of Radio Free Acton was edited by Caroline Roberts and Daniel Menjivar.